You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. And uh, the first thing I want to talk about this week is an item that got almost no attention whatsoever in the Israeli press. But I think it's important that people know about it. Uh, there was a bombing in this Baro restaurant 22 years ago here in the heart of Jerusalem. It's a long time ago. It turns out now that Chana Nachenberg died on Wednesday last week, almost 22 years after a Palestinian suicide bomber bombed the Subaru pizza place and she was put as a result of the bombing in a vegetative state. She came from New York, was 31 years old when the bombing took place. At that time, she had a two-year-old daughter named Sarah, who was one of the few to survive the attack unscathed. A, uh, the terrorist who bombed the restaurant, his name is not important. Uh, the, the, there was a killing of 15 people in that time, including seven uh, children, a pregnant woman, and 130 people were wounded. The bomb that he carried in a restaurant included nails meant to cause extreme injury. His accomplice was another Arab who chose the location for the attack. His, his accomplice was convicted and given 16 life sentences, but unfortunately was released in a prisoner swamp for captive IDF soldier Gilad Shalit several years ago. Tamimi is one of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. It's a, she's a woman, by the way, and her poster says she should be considered armed and dangerous. The FBI poster asked for tips, offering a reward of up to $5 million. Now, interestingly enough, her location is known. She lives in Jordan, where, believe it or not, she hosts a talk show on a Hamas-affiliated television channel. Now, the United States has asked Jordan to extradite her for what happened. Jordan has refused to do so. So I just thought that something that appears way, way under the headlines, that the person who killed all those and injured all those Jews 22 years ago is now a television personality in Jordan, and one of the victims who was in a coma for 22 years died. Neither of these items seems to get a very large uh, headline in Jerusalem. I found, I found it in the English newspaper, the Jerusalem Post, back on page 7, and I found it in the Idiot, way back, I think it was on page 10 the other day. But I think these are things that are worth remembering, and therefore I, uh, I mention it to the uh, listeners. Now, I want to go on to another topic, 
And as before, I introduce the topic. I, I want to say a uh, a word. It's you know I I'm what is considered an Orthodox Jew, and the Jews in general are broken down into Orthodox, Conservative, Reform. It's loosened. It this kind of ex, uh, kind of breakdown didn't exist 200 years ago, to the best of my knowledge. And uh, one of the leaders of the uh, Orthodox uh, of the Reformed. Um, uh, a rabbinate was a, a rabbi Hirsch, and uh, when I moved, in, moved into my house in uh, Jerusalem, he moved into my apartment. Uh, he was one of my uh, neighbors, and we were extremely friendly. I had a lot of long talks with him. He was a uh, a reform rabbi, a leader of the reform movement. I'm just another North, another Orthodox Jew living on the first floor. He lived on the fourth floor, and we spent very pleasant hours talking together just about everything. With the with, and and incidentally, uh, when uh, my uh, mother-in-law passed away, my wife was doing what is called sitting shiva. He came into the, the apartment. And uh, he wore a kippah. He wore a head covering. And uh, I used to see him. It's interesting. I used to meet him sometimes on a Saturday morning when he I was walking to my synagogue and he was getting into his car to go to his synagogue. So we really got along. I just bring that up as background to uh, what I'm going to say now. Uh, the uh, According to... Uh, the, there's a problem that, that that Israel is having with liberal American Jews. Liberal American Jews are turning away from Israel. In other words, they don't look at Israel simply as the Jewish state. They look at it as another country, and they look at its policies toward everybody else. So can, they look at Israel's policy toward the Palestinians, they look at his policies and construction and settlements. The uh, now there is a the, the look at the fact that there is now a right wing government, and uh, they they large numbers of American Jews cannot identify or defend or even support the Jewish state today. To them, Israel is too nationalistic, too religious too militaristic, too particularistic. Its values have changed. Its people have changed. Now, what I really think has changed, by the way, not just Israel, but changes the American Jews. When I, when the state of Israel came into being in 1948, and I remember it, I remember my grandparents sitting by the radio and families sitting by television when the UN voted to create the state of Israel. And the that was a tale that Jews of all stripes identified with, particularly at that time. It was only a few years, two years after the Holocaust. The What's happened now, within less than a century, Something has altered the trajectory of Jewish history, and a large part of the Jewish people in the United States who are unaware of Jewish history 
are becoming alienated from Israel. Now, this has happened as the numbers of those with personal experience of the Holocaust, either survivors or their children, that number is is getting smaller and smaller. It's almost disappearing. And generations are now growing up with no familiarity with Israel before it was the military and economic power that it is today. This, these people who don't really have any historical Jewish background only look upon Israel as a military power and an economic power that has problems with its neighbors. And they have very little, if no memory, of the existential threats the country faced before the Six-Day War and during the Yom Kippur War. Some, as a matter of fact, in some cases, some American Jews have turned into some of, of Israel's loudest critics. And all, there's, there are all kind of prominent Jewish politicians, intellectuals, journalists, and celebrities who bash Israel all the time. Now, they, in, they are probably and hopefully a minority, but their voices are amplified within the media for a simple reason. And that is, and this was pointed out in an editorial in the Jerusalem Post, that a Jew who supports Israel is not news. What is news is a Jew who says that that they don't support Israel. They, uh, that, uh, that the history they learned of Israel in Hebrew school was not true. They believe that the state of Israel is illegitimate and Israelis are interlopers in Palestine oppressing the indigenous people. A generation is being raised in America that believe this. Now, for, now what happens? Interesting. Dozens of rabbinical students affiliated with reform and conservative movements signed a letter that denounced Israel during what was called Operation Guarding of the Walls two years ago. And a conservative rabbi declared earlier this year that his synagogue will no longer say the prayer for the welfare of the state of Israel. Now that gets a lot of attention and it feeds the perception that significant parts of American Jewry have lost their affinity with the state of Israel, the, du the Jewish state that arose after almost 2,000 years of exile. This is a major problem. Now, uh, against this background, the, uh, a, uh, a conference was held last week in New York attended by hundreds of reform rabbis, cantors, educators, administrators, and synagogue lay leaders, and that was a good thing. And it was organized by Rabbi Hirsch, the rabbi of a reform uh, synagogue in New York, and uh, one of the more popular, uh, well-known reform, and the son of the man who was my neighbor, uh, Rabbi Hirsch. And it, the, it took months to plan this, uh, this, uh, this conference, and it, dealt, it was planned primarily by the rabbi himself, 
not by the umbrella organization, and it dealt with the most sensitive core issues in the reform movement, including the growing distance between North American liberal Jews and Israel, and the and the and the, the connection that is weakening with the concept of Jewish peoplehood. And the the, the Rabbi Hirsch, as I said, the son of my my former neighbor, is really concerned, and and he has reason to be concerned. Hirsch was quoted as saying he believes. The Jewish community and the reform movement in particular are at a historic crossroads. Amid the latest disturbing developments in Israel after its most recent election and the pre-existing increasing dissing from Israel within its own ranks, it is incumbent upon the leaders of the reform movement to address a meaningful way the communal challenges that are tearing at the ideological and theological foundations of their own movement and their connections to the Jewish people and the Jewish state. One of the things that is apparently disturbing these people very much is the nature of the Israeli government. Now, there are a lot of people here in Israel who are not happy with the Israeli government. There are certain parties that are part of the government that people really don't, not just they disagree with, they really don't like, they really hate. That's actually a very strong emotion when you're talking about politics. There are a number of members of the Knesset today, the, they are legitimately elected members of Knesset. However, the, their opinions, the nature of politics here in Israel uh, brought these people uh, to the fore. They they were never had positions of authority before, and the truth of the matter is, it's not just their opinions that one disagree, uh, can disagree with, but they are unable really to responsibly hold their positions. The they look upon the Knesset, the uh, the Congress of Israel, as something like a uh, big synagogue. Where you can yell and scream in order to push forward your own ideas. These people are are immature, but they were elected, and to the sense we're stuck with them until the next election. And not only that, but the since they're part of the coalition, the prime minister gives in to them very much to keep himself in the, in as head of the government, and so. Here you, it's it's a situation that is really different than has happened uh, in the past in the, in the seventy-five year history of the state, and uh, it, it's a really a problem. And interestingly enough, by the way, uh, the uh, according to a twenty-two survey by the Pew Research Center, more than half of the Jews identify with either the reform movement, they're 37%, or the conservative movement, which is 17%, while only about 9% identify with the Orthodox Judaism. So the so reform Judaism is very large. 
By the way, the conservative movement has seen a significant decline in membership over the past 30 years. In 1990, the portion of conservative Jews were a little more than a third, and now it's down to 17%, and uh, so they dropped by more than half. The reform is actually growing, or is at least consistent. 1990, 38% were self-described reformed Jews, and today it's 37%. So it's pretty much the, uh, the same uh, number. The By the way, Again, uh, I'm wandering somewhat, but uh, it's, uh, these, some of these uh, items are interest. In, in 2017, the reform movement opposed President Donald Trump's U.S. embassy move to Jerusalem. The president of the reform movement was Rabbi Rick Jacobs, who was quoted saying at the time, we cannot support his decision to begin preparing that move now absent a comprehensive plan for a peace program. And the person who opposed him is Rabbi Hirsch, who I said is the son of my neighbor. And Hirsch opposed him already then. He wrote that well, he wants the Jewish world to know that, that that position against the move of the American embassy to Jerusalem is not my position, nor does it reflect the views of multitudes Multitudes, perhaps most reformed Jews. Now, the, uh, the Rabbi Jacobs, who opposed the move of the embassy to Jerusalem, it was quoted as saying that he looks forward to thoughtful debate about the challenges and opportunities that matter most, doing so in respect for the multiple legitimate views found within the reform movement. So, by the way, Soon as you're talking about the reform movement, I'm certainly not an expert about the about the reform movement. Conversions have become less of an issue with the reform movement since many of the rabbis will officiate marriage services even if one of the spouses into Jewish or is not Jewish. Uh, according to Jewish law, the you, uh, in case of an intermarriage, the child is considered be, to be of the of the religion of the mother. That's that's the according to basic halacha. The um, as a matter of fact, people can actually join a reformed congregation simply don't self-define themselves as Jews. So Rabbi Hirsch um, said that the movement has possibly not done enough to educate reformed Jews about Israel. So it, so some some are. Communities who won't visit Israel will not let their rabbis speak to Israel, and uh, many rabbis are afraid uh, of the debate about Israel in their congregations. So Israel is losing its centrality amongst Reformed Jews. The another issue apparently is that conversion process has gradually disappeared totally in American. Reformed congregations. So Rabbi Hurst said our movement was not doing enough, and, and and that why they that is why they had the conference. So we it, it, it appears then just to summarize this that the reform movement in the United States is facing a form of crisis, and the a a large part of that crisis. It's, 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 
is its relationship to the state of Israel. As I said at the beginning, when the state of Israel came into being in 1948, at that time also there were a lot of people who, who of course remembered and, and had and were knowledgeable of the Second World War, and some were even refugees. And when the state of Israel came to being, people were, were happy to see a Jewish state arise after almost 2,000 years. Had there been a Jewish state 10 years previously, we might not have lost 6 million people. But the bottom line is that the educational system in the United States and apparently, uh, particularly in the reform movement, uh, does not give enough emphasis about the importance, the very existence of the state of Israel, and it's important for the Jewish people. So in that sense, the reform movement is in the middle of a crisis. And hopefully, hopefully, the end result will be a closer relationship with Israel and an understanding of the of the existence of the state of Israel and its importance for the Jewish future. So I just wanted to share several thoughts on issue with the listeners. I'll be back after the break. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk. From Israel. Hi, this is Betsy Penn from Phoenix, Arizona, and I love Israel News Talk Radio for the interesting interviews, accurate information, spiritual guidance, political insight, humor, and passion for the truth. You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back again with Jay Shapiro, and I want to say a few words about Haredi politics. Now, a lot of people don't know what Haredi is, but it's generally called in English the ultra-Orthodox world. Now, one of the leaders of a group in the uh, ultra-Orthodox world, the Haredi world, was Rabbi Yerachmiel Edelstein, and he passed away last week, and he was considered to be the last of a generation of spiritual leaders. He was known as Maran, which is a title reserved for rabbis whose authority was accepted by the entire Lithuanian Haredi establishment. There are different Haredi groups, and one is the Lithuanian group. In broad strokes, Lithuanian Haredi establishment opposes any form of secular studies. They oppose getting drafted into the army or other forms of integration into Israeli society. It also believes in taking a practical approach to politics as opposed to an ideological, any kind of ideological rhetoric. It does not attempt to win opponents opponents over to its side. There are parties in the Knesset, Haredi parties, who just will go along with anything that the government does 
as long as he benefit, make benefit, have benefit for its own people, it negotiated it negotiates with all the parties in the Knesset in order to maintain its autonomous status and receive sufficient resources for its educational system and religious academies, which are generally known as yeshivot. Now, so there now there is another group which is uh, within the uh, Orthodox uh, political movement, which is not uh, based on the Lithuanian school, if you will, and uh, these people, what are called Hasidic mostly, they agreed in past government to enter an educational ministry program that would supply its schools with funding in exchange for introducing core secular studies with the ministry's oversight. In other words, one group is opposed to any kind of secular education, and the other one goes along with it as long as it gets uh, budgets for its edu edu educational system. So, uh, I, without going on to all the details, the, the logical details between uh, the Hasidic element and the Lithuanian element, there are Orthodox uh, parties in the Knesset that are either Hasidic or uh, Lithuanian, what you call, and they have different attitudes toward the government itself. Now, these current public, and this is what the important thing, this is why the reason I wanted to discuss this, the current public debate over budgetary allocations to the Haredi sector in Israel fails to address a very critical component, and that is the long-term financial implications. A central issue under discussion is the anticipated impact on Israel's economic future of the growing numbers of Israel Haredi children whose education does not include secular or core curriculum subjects. What, are, what, are the, what does a core curriculum be, be? It means English, math, science. So the question is, if a lot of people are being raised without these core subjects, they won't be able to find high-quality jobs in the future. It's interesting, by the way, the Israeli army, in its planning processes, calculates the number of Haredi children entering first grade and subtracts this number from the potential pool of draftees it expects to enter its rank 12 years later. No one is really dealing with the even longer-term implications of this situation. The army is trying to figure out how many of the kids entering school now will 12 years from now not go into the army. That's the army sees that problem or that issue. However, there's another issue which is just as important, perhaps more important, that is pensions and old age benefits. Now, today, there are approximately 135,000 Haredi boys studying in elementary schools. Uh, and 
This re represents, when you think about it, 135,000 potential IDF draftees who will apply for a military service exemption in 6 to 12 years from now. Later on, it's highly probable they will develop into 135,000 Haredi men who rely on benefit payments and government stipends and will be exempt from paying income tax even though they are of working age. And even later on, in 55 to 60 years' time, they will become 135,000 senior citizens who are eligible for national insurance payments. So the it's interesting, we, we, just putting aside the moment that, that they won't serve in the army, these people will, will be as Israeli citizens who will not have essentially uh, contributed to the economics of the society will be eligible for national insurance payments. If you've not worked on a formal basis or have not made appropriate pension contributions, they will be entitled to an old-age state pension. It also includes income support. The question is, who will pay for these enhanced benefits? Now, today, around one-half of Haredi men do not work. And of those who do, majority are employed in low-level jobs with their income lower than the threshold for paying income tax. As a result, in the future, their pensions will be also very low. In other words, a, a group is growing up in Israel that's going to be poor. Moreover, given the rise in life expectancy and the growing need for medical services later years, these 135,000 boys and then men and then senior citizens will also not pay health tax and they'll place a heavy burden on the health care system in about 60 years from now. Now, that's a huge number of men who in their old age will need to rely heavily on state support systems without having invested decades of payments into the funding for these systems and without having saved for their old age. By the way, the, the uh, numbers that I'm, uh, that I'm uh, reading here for the listeners were developed by researchers at the Israeli Democracy Institute. And these are real numbers, and they, they present a very serious problem in the future. Now, up to now, I've been talking about uh, Haredi men. What about Haredi women? Now, Haredi women, some of, do, uh, some of whom do study the core curriculum, which, as I said, is uh, English, math, science, and uh, it, there, some of these women uh, do indeed study the core curriculum, and their level of participation in the world force is similar to that of non-Haredi Jewish women. But they, non-Haredi Jewish women also earn less on, on the average than, than other uh, Jewish women who in turn earn less than non-Haredi Jewish men, for among other reasons why because they work fewer hours on average, 
A lot of women, not Haredi women, women who actually work, and they work through fewer hours. I remember when uh, when I worked at Israel Aircraft, the company provided uh, provided um, uh, transportation for people in the morning and in the afternoon to go home, and uh, the, the the we we should start work between seven and eight in the morning. And we worked till like four or four thirty in the afternoon, and the company provided transportation to bring us to work and take us home. But there was a transportation available for women around two or two thirty in the afternoon, a couple hours before the regular transportation, because women, not Haredi women, just general women, worked less hours. It's considered a fact they have families and things of that nature, and that's taken into account which I think is very nice, by the way. So although Haredi women <clears throat> make pension contributions uh, while they are working, their pensions will be lower than those of the average Israeli woman, certainly not be sufficient to support both themselves and their husbands, maybe their families, when they reach retirement age. So it turns out that a uh, survey was ca- survey was carried out by the Israeli Democracy Institute, and um, the they they did a survey, a telephone survey of about seven hundred ultra ultra orthodox men and women between the ages of twenty. I'm sorry, from twenty and above. And 78% of respondents of pensionable age reported that their income is lower or much lower than it was when they were working. So these respondents belong to the previous generation of Haredi society from a time when going out to work was more of an accepted norm. Today, it is less of an accepted norm. So, even though they had a lower than average income when they were working, and their pensions are also below average today, so experiencing a significant drop in income following retirement is is really a serious thing. By the way, experiencing a, a drop in income following re, uh, retirement is not unique to Haredim. I know myself, <laughs> um, not being a Haredi and having worked. Uh, you know, when you work, you get a good salary, and you also get overtime benefits and things of that nature. And uh, unless you've done some fantastic investing, your income uh, is simply going to be a lot less when you're retired. But what's unique today and is likely to be exacerbated in the future is the low percentage of Haredi men who are indeed employed and the low income learned from work due to a lack of training and of core curriculum studies. If you don't study the core curriculum, the uh, employment possibilities are simply much less. But by, by the way, when I came to Israel, the foreign language you were supposed to know was French, French and English, I guess. In, in Lebanon, it was French. But I remember here when we came on Aliyah, all the signs in the post office were in French. But because the British had had the mandate here, English was very important. So these characteristics 
uh, affect the macro level and the large proportion of Haredi population who rely solely on government benefits for income and will do so as senior citizens, while only a tiny share will have accrued sufficient pension savings. And in the micro sense, the ability of individuals to live in dignity after they retire. It's interesting. The among the those uh, again, this this is from the again from researchers at the Israeli Democracy Institute. Among those ultra orthodox survey respondents who have not yet reached retirement age, less than forty percent of their income after retirement will be lower than their current income. And a little more than 50% know where their pension fund is held, and 20% report they have no pension fund at all. So, um, while over optimism or lack of awareness about pensions isn't limited to Haredim, and among Haredim, there's an additional cause for concern. Among those who work, a little more only a little more than 20% save for a pension beyond the mandatory contribution to a pension fund made by employers or the minimum contribution required of self-employed workers and among Haredim who do not work only about 22% save for a pension at all so the bottom line is these data are extremely troubling in light of the high percentage Haredim who do not work. Now, given that a large majority of these are not saving for a pension, they face severe poverty at retirement age and will place a heavy burden on the national insurance and the national health systems. So this is a very, very severe problem, and it's a problem that it's going to grow. Now, it's interesting. <clears throat> the annual growth rate of the Haredi community stands around 4%, and if this rate remains stable, the community will double its size every 16 years. So having a large proportion of senior citizens supported by the state will require a massive investment of public resources, so it's difficult to see how the current level of welfare service provision can be maintained, and the result will be a much poorer Israel than the one that we have become accustomed to. Say, the senior officials, by the way, in the finance ministry's budget division have already stated in a professional opinion that significant increases in taxation may have to be introduced, which will apply to the other sections of the population. In other words, the people who work will have to pay more taxes to support the people who didn't work. Otherwise, there will be a total collapse of the government support system. The, the Israeli government feels a responsibility to support its citizens, and particularly its elder citizens. citizens. But it, there's a limit. If you, you have to have the budget to do it. So and it's interesting, by the way, a, a lot of people are, are counting on getting inheritances. The... Uh, 
According to this report, uh, pensioners live off inheritance from their parents who themselves die close to retirement age. But this is a misguided plan. The rise in life expectancy delays the passing down of inheritance, and the huge rise in the number of children divides up any sums left by parents into small and insufficient shares. In other words, People today say, well, I'm saving my my um, my money for my retirement. But today's people are retiring later, and they're living longer, and they're not going to have what they give to their kids. Like, so the data show that the ultra-Orthodox population, like other disadvantaged uh, populations, does not save enough for pensions and not aware of the importance of long-term financial planning. Thinking about the long-term would lead, I think, most Haredim to understand the importance of a core curriculum studies like English and like math and like science so they can make a decent living and get a, a decent uh, pension. So uh, they would insist now their children are taught these cores and enter the workforce, which would likely save them from poverty later on. So uh, thinking about the long term would also show them that it's not possible to rely on the state budget to fund benefits when a growing number of senior citizens will become former yeshiva and kolel students who did not contribute to the state's coffers. So these reserves will be emptied out, there'll be nothing spare in the budget, and a heavy price will be paid by the entire population, including in terms of the services that the state will be able to provide. So According to the Israel Dem- Democracy Institute, which is what I've been quoting in this section of the program, so according to them, by staying silent and ignoring the issues today, we are all betraying our future elderly population and our future welfare and health care services. So the finance ministry the National Insurance Institute and other agencies whose job it is to plan in the long term, the uh, they can see this coming. So the uh, they they must make the public, the government in particular aware of the possible disastrous consequences that has to be made clear to the entire public and particularly. Uh, to the Haredi community itself, and they, they, they have to make sure that the Haredi population itself is made well aware of these issues, because we're going to have a real big problem in 50 years from now. We have a large number of people who are not able to support themselves and have to rely on others who are not going to be very happy about it. So this is pretty much the results of this uh, Democracy Institute study that I wanted to share with the listeners because it was sort of a surprise to me, but it is a reality that has to be dealt with. I'll be back after the break. Howdy, this is Rita from League City, Texas. 
now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Arba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover. Hey, this is Nicole Eko from Malmo, Sweden. It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Bruce Brill here from Nokdim, Israel, in Judea, the homeland of the Jews, and I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Morris from Tennessee. Me and my dog Buster really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. <laughs> You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and I want to say a few more words about the burning issue that's really the top of the headlines in Israel every day. I'm talking about judicial reform that the present government is trying to make to lower the power or reduce the power of the judiciary here in Israel. Now, uh, Last week, last Sunday, there was the annual march in New York. It's a parade for Israel. And an estimated 40,000 people marched. I think, as I recall, they marched down Fifth Avenue. Now, what happened was, during this parade, there were about 200 Israeli expatriates and American Jews protesting against the government's plans to overhaul the judicial system, and they uh, demonstrated at this annual parade. So um, there were some Israeli cabinet ministers present at the parade, and others changed their minds and didn't attend the parade. Uh, This is an annual event. And it's been going on, as I said, for 58 years in a row. Now, what happened was a group of marchers, which are led by a former Israeli consul general in New York, wore shirts that read Zionism equals democracy, and they chanted over and over again the word democracy. And they were actually joined by a U.S. representative, Jerry Nadler from New York. Now, some of the protesters yelled shame at Knesset members who happened to be there. For example, one of the leaders uh, in the Knesset for this reform is a gentleman named Simcha Rothman. He's the the head of the Knesset Constitution Law and Justice Committee, and he is one of the central figures in the government's reforms. There are also some other... uh, members of the Knesset who were there who were booed. Now, thankfully, the demonstrations remain under control. The the parade organizers said that they were concerned about possible violent protests against the ministers and the cabinet ministers who planned to participate. That's why some of them indeed canceled uh, their uh, attendance. Uh, for example, Nir Bakat, who was the former mayor of Jerusalem and the economy minister today, he cancels his appearance. 
and uh, they can't. He and others canceled their uh, appearance at the request of the prime minister's office. They didn't want to see any kind of uh, interruption of this annual parade. Now, I want I want to say a few things about that. There have been street demonstrations here in Israel against the government's plans to change the power of the judiciary here in Israel. These these, um, Saturday night um, protests have been going on for about 22 weeks. A lot of them take place near the home of Israel's president, which is about a little less than a mile from where I live. And I've had many occasions where I had to actually go through police barricades and get permission to go to my own home if I was coming from outside, or if I had to leave, I had to get permission to leave the house. So it affected me personally, but that but that really is all immaterial. Now, they estimate that some of these protests, which take place all over Israel, they say perhaps the total amount each week, and it's becoming less each week, but it's been estimated there might be 150,000 protesting here in Israel. And if you compare that to America, that would be like 5.3 million, million Americans protesting every week. Imagine getting 5.3 million Americans to protest week after week for five and a half months The uh, about anything, let alone the makeup of the committee to appoint the Supreme Court justices. So... It's interesting that Israel is really a democracy. There is absolutely no violence at any of these protests. And apparently the the message of the protests is getting across because the justice minister, uh, who's, he has this judicial reform, a reform plan, has, has pretty much put it aside and there are talks on uh, under President Isaac's auspices to come to some kind of consensus on the changes in judiciary. And so that, in a sense, says that the protests have been uh, effective. So I, there were many protests in Israel. I myself was in many protests over the years. But few protests over the years have been as sustained and as large as this one. Now, this being the case, attention is brought to the issue by some editorial writers. I want to share their thoughts with the listeners because I think they're important. The, The question is, we have these protests, peaceful protests here in Israel just about every week. Should these protests be exported and transplanted to cities outside the country? What is benefit is gained by any Jews, whether Israelis and Americans, by protesting something that's happening in Israel in New York? It's not as if no one is listening to the voicing being raised here. 
Indeed, the government and the opposition are sitting down trying to make some kind of compromise. So what's the point in raising this issue overseas? And why bother uh, government ministers abroad? The uh, One of the ministers in New York, people followed him down the street yelling in his ears with a loudspeaker. I mean, what what's the point in this? The... Um, what is the matter in making the representatives of this government feel uncomfortable and not wanted wherever they walk? If a government minister from Israel is walking on the street in New York, he should feel safe. So the question is apparently, has been pointed out, it's a question of perception. The United States the state public is accustomed to seeing protests against Israelis and Israeli officials, but these protests are generally by Palestinians and supporters of the Palestinians. The United States public is simply unaccustomed to seeing U.S. Jews and Israelis protesting against harassing Israeli government officials in America. On, on, on Fifth Avenue in New York. So here you have Israelis, essentially, and American Jews protesting against Israel. As a matter of fact, when our prime minister visited Washington, uh, or when APAC holds large gatherings in college campuses, the, that, that's one thing. The, the the things that are protested when Israelis show up on college campuses, they're, pro they're generally protested or almost always prote protested, protested against by Palestinians. But the idea of seeing Jews protesting against representatives of the state of Israel, that's a whole, two, a whole new ball game. So Jews demonstrating or protesting against the current government, they're not protesting against the state of Israel. But this nuance that they're protesting against this government and not against the state may well be lost on the average American viewer. If you're watching uh, ABC or NBC or any of the television programs and news, and you see Israelis and Jews protesting against an Israeli minister, it, there's a subtlety here. They're not protesting against the state of Israel, protesting against the policy of the state of Israel. A lot of people don't, don't get it, the uh, subtlety here. So you get a glimpse of Jews protesting against government officials at an Israeli parade or, and walking on, and while these people are walking on Fifth Avenue gives the wrong impression. And it's interesting, by the way, the late U.S. Senator John McCain fiercely criticized the Obama administration when it went, yet when he was one of his many trips abroad, he made it a point not to voice criticism against his government. The same is true Menachem Begin. Menachem Begin was a violent critic, critic of the government. In the early days of the state, he demonstrated against the government, but he would not say one word of the, against the government when he made a trip abroad. The reason is an understanding of the importance of maintaining a positive, international image. 
no matter where you are, and particularly in the United States. Now, Israel, even more than many other countries for sure, needs a positive international image abroad. But when protesters, particularly Jewish protesters, chant about the end of Israeli democracy or the threat of dictatorship and the dawn of Israeli fascism, when doing it on Fifth Avenue and not in the uh, in the center of Tel Aviv, this adds to a negative perception of the state of Israel. Now, this this negative uh, impression is problematic for two reasons. Firstly, because those who want to do Israel harm, not because of one government or one reform or the other, there are people who really don't like the idea of a Jewish state here in the Middle East, they get a strong backwind from these displays of anti-government manifestation by Jews outside of Israel. Most people watching don't understand that they're these demonstrators are demonstrating against a certain issue. They're not demonstrating against the state itself. These, these opponents, people who want to see the state of Israel destroyed, will not distinguish between opposition to the government and opposition to the state. So they use the protest of Jews abroad against Israel officials to strengthen their case against the very existence of the state of Israel, against Israel's legitimacy. So that's the first problem with these protests outside the country. Now, secondly, protests of American Jews shouting words like fascism and dictatorship Throwing words like that at Israeli leaders who are visiting in the States will provide additional excuses to cut off all ties with Israel for those American Jews who years have been backpedaling from the Jewish state. Now, I, I think I quoted either last week or the previous part of this program. Um, I don't keep close records. Rabbi, Rabbi uh, Emil Hirsch of the Stephen Weiss Free Synagogue in New York addressed the phenomenon of liberal American Jews who are getting distance, making a distance from Israel. And he, in, in, uh, right, he, he um, initiated a, co a conference to, re he called it Recharging Reform Judaism. I think I'm, I mentioned this before. Now, it's obvious that Rabbi Hirsch cannot be accused of having sympathy with the current government of Israel. or He certainly cannot be accused of, of uh, having a sympathy with judicial reform because he made it clear in a keynote speech at his conference he is indeed opposed to judicial reform that the government's trying to do. But he also made something else very clear. That giving no quarter to those seeking to harm Israel is important. The question is whether these types of protests abroad inadvertently harm Israel. He said, and I quote, 
I'm troubled by weakened attachment to Israel, the most eloquent expression of Jewish people in our time. For the record, like so many of us, I'm appalled by elements of the current Israeli government. We will never sanitize ultra-nationalist extremists and religious fundamentalists. They are out of the mainstream and beyond the pale of normative Jewish and Zionist values. But the process of distancing from Israel is gathering strength for a number of years now, regardless of what government comes into existence. If anything, the crisis imposes upon American Jews a greater urgency. And he, the rabbi, said... I worry deeply the increasing numbers of liberal young adults, including those entering reform leadership, express indifference to Israel or worse, opposition, not to the policy of the Israeli government, but to the very legitimacy of the state of Israel, which is the Zionist enterprise. Unquote. And by the way, I myself... Uh, I disagree with some parts of the reform, but but something that that's on a local uh, on a local level to turn against Israel to join ideological opponents and political enemies of Israel is is really doing something not just against the state; it's against Zionism, and according to the rabbi, it's a form of Jewish illness. It's a, an atrophying of our intellectual and emotional commitment to our people. In other words, you can be against a policy of the Israeli government. That's why there is, is opposition in Israel, that we are, we are a democracy. The opposition is, in general, opposed to the policy of the government. What you, when you take to the streets outside of Israel, like in Newark, opposed to a policy of the Israeli government, it's interpreted as being opposed to the state of Israel. That's how people see it outside the state. So what we have to do is suppose here in Israel in a democratic fashion. Jews and Israelis protesting against our government and against judicial reform in New York are not in any way Israeli haters. There's are Jews doing this. Yet their actions may inadvertently confuse people who may erroneously interpret their demonstrations as being not against the government, but against the very state of Israel itself. And the, now here in Israel, you have hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets to protest the, against the government and the judicial reform. There's little confusion. They're opposed to the government and its policies, certainly not against the state, when they protest here in Israel. When Jews protest against Israeli officials abroad, this may be less clear to the uninitiated. It may be interpreted by those not familiar with the nuances of Israel as opposing opposing the state itself. The bottom line is, it's one thing to demonstrate against the policies of a government and against government officials to demonstrate against them here in Israel. It's another thing 
with substantial risk of misinterpretation by the general public when these protests and those re- and these their rhetoric are repeated abroad abroad. And therefore, there, when you have something like the annual Israeli parade, it is not a place to make a protest against any particular policy of the Israeli government. The whole purpose of the annual Israeli parade is to celebrate the existence of the state of Israel, no matter who's running the government. To use this annual occasion, which is a happy occasion, to use it to protest against a particular policy of a particular government sends a very wrong message, not only to Jews, but to the general public. So people have to be extremely careful where they do their protesting. You really want to protest against the Israeli government policies, the best place to do it is in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem or anywhere else in Israel, not on Fifth Avenue in New York. Having said that, thanks again for listening. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is the radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back uh, with Jay Shapiro. And this uh, last segment on the program, I want to touch a few, upon a few items that are not related to each other. And uh, one of the items is I found extremely uh, painful, actually, to me personally. And that is, in fact, that during the same week, last week, there were two dates of tremendous importance, both in human history and in Jewish history. Jewish history. June 6th was the anniversary of D-Day, the American invasion of Europe that was the beginning of the end of the Second World War. There was almost nothing in the newspapers at all about this event. The only article I found was one on the, the second or third page of the second part of the daily newspaper, the Jerusalem Post, and the article was concerned with the fact that France's last surviving D-Day commando was went to Normandy to celebrate the 79th anniversary of the invasion. Now, the he's 100 years old, by the way. The um, it's interesting that this is such an important event in Jewish history and in world history got almost no attention at all. And I think it, it, it explains a lot of the fact about the fact that our young generation in many countries in the West are totally unaware of their history and our history 
And that is a very, very bad mistake, because if you don't know your history, then you're going to have a serious problem in organizing your future. So that's as far as uh, the invasion of Europe was back in 1944. The other event that occurred during the week was uh, June 5th, which was the beginning of the Six-Day War. And uh, interestingly enough, it's a major occasion. Uh, it's the English date, the secular date, the beginning of the Six-Day War. And uh, in, modern, in modern history, people don't seem to know enough about these important dates. The, uh, it, was, it, it was a changing event, a really serious event. He got almost no write-up at all. What is interesting, by the way, that um, there was an ad in the newspapers on, the, on, the, uh, on Wednesday, June 7th, because that was the day, the secular date, when the city of Jerusalem fell into Jewish hands for the first time in almost two millennia. And oddly enough, the real recognition of Jerusalem Day, which commemorated June 7th, 2023, was a, um, an, a, not an article, not advertisement, a statement in the press signed primarily by religious leaders of other countries. Just to give you an idea, the people who signed were from Ethiopia, Nigeria, Bangladesh, Mozambique, Bulgaria, uh, Liberia, Germany, Guatemala, Guinea, Argentina, Colombia, Brazil, Ivory Coast, Gabon, Chad, South Africa, Mongolia, I think I mentioned Solomon Islands, Austria, Kenya, and uh, the Czech Republic, uh, and uh, actually one of one of the people who signed the uh, this um, uh, praise for the Jerusalem Day was a uh, former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper. But it really, it seems to me, there's something wrong in our educational system. Uh, that we are not commemorating these really important days, both in the world history and in Jewish history. Now, here, uh, the Hebrew date of Jerusalem Day is a very big celebration. Here in Jerusalem, it's not a big celebration in the rest of, uh, of Israel. Uh, Israel Independence Day, of course, is a big celebration. But the fact that the city of Jerusalem came under Jewish hands, almost first time in almost two millennia, it doesn't seem to get the proper recognition. It is a is a world changing event, and it doesn't get the proper recognition by by the world and by uh, Israel. So I just want to pass my feelings along to the uh, to the listeners. Something should be has to be done about it. And by the way, along these same lines. Uh, something interesting happened both in um, in France and in the United States that I really find disturbing. In Paris, 
the presidents of three major Jewish organizations were boycott, boycotted the visit of Israeli fine, finance minister Bitzalel Smutrich, and didn't, they didn't, leaders of these Jewish organizations didn't participate in an event that was set to take place on Tuesday evening with, uh, with him and representatives of the French Jewish community. Now, it, whether you like the, uh, the uh, present government or not in Israel, where I remember when the state of Israel came into being, everybody celebrated it because it, they finally had a Jewish state off the, or after all those years. And the, the Jewish state at that time, the government of the Jewish state, when the Jewish state came into being in 1948, was a socialist government. Americans celebrated that, American Jews celebrated that government, although they themselves wouldn't want to live under a socialist government. They didn't want socialism in Europe. They didn't want socialism in the United States. They wouldn't want socialism in Israel. Eventually, in 1977, the socialist leadership was kicked out of government. But that's not the point. People celebrated the fact that there was a state of Israel. And for example, when ben, I remember when Ben-Gurion, who was the prime minister, came to visit uh, the United States in the early 50s, there was a big celebration in Philadelphia at Independence Hall. Now, I doubt very much if even one person in that audience in Philadelphia was a socialist or who would vote for socialism. But they celebrated the fact that a president, that a Prime Minister of the newly formed, formed state of Israel came to the United States, and that's what they celebrate, not his politics. And today, politics seems to be to be uh, broader and more penetrating than it used to be. As a matter of fact, the uh, there was a, a a big American Jewish tradition. Over forty thousand American Jews, mainly children and youth and families took to the streets of New York last week in honor of Israel, and had been doing so for decades. Now, obviously, they didn't all agree with the current Israeli government, but they always came out, flags and shirts and floats, and celebrating the only Jewish state in the universe. So it's a tradition that dates back to 1965. Tens of thousands of people came together, expressed their love and support for Israel. And it is a joyful event. It's a powerful, powerful display of solidarity with Israel, especially in times of crisis. However, this year, the parade in New York was marred by no more than maybe 200 protesters who decided to use this occasion to vent their anger and frustration at some of the Israeli ministers of the Knesset who were marching in the parade. Uh, they they came up with all kinds of signs like save Israel, stop the overall. They shouted insults and slogans at the ministers. They accused them of betraying Israel's democracy and so forth. So the th that was really shameful. It was a small but vocal group who followed the Israeli elected officials in the parade, and they yelled shame at them. The, uh, there were also by some who demonstrated peacefully. They were the minority. 
for as a matter of fact, all the the Jewish leaders and the leadership from all backgrounds urged the demonstrators move to to leave the parade, not to demonstrate, because the protesters' behavior was disrupt, disrespectful, disruptive, and divisive. They violated the spirit and the sanctity, really the sanctity of the parade, which is meant to celebrate Israel's achievement and not to criticize its policies or leaders. So they, they alienated and offended many of the parade participants because they had come there to show their support for Israel, not to witness a political dispute. It, it was simply the wrong time and the wrong place to have any demonstration of your political views. The... Uh, the the, the 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 people don't get the sanctity and the gesture of having the Jews in their uh, uh, in their own historic homeland. They 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 love Israel. I'm sure even those who disagree with the government, though the protesters should apologize for their actions and really refrain from repeating them in the future. They should also respect the diversity of opinions and perspectives within the Jewish community in Israel and abroad. Supporting Israel does not mean agreeing with everything that happens in Israel. The very existence of the state of Israel is what is being celebrated. So to turn it into a, uh, a, a cause for political demonstrations is simply wrong. It's uh, it's wrong and it's impolite, it's discourteous, and it shows a lack of understanding of Jewish history. And I wanted to get that off my mind. Another subject which bothers me, and it should bother any thinking supporter of Israel, is the attitude of the UN toward the state of Israel and its misrepresentation. The United Nations uh, has a representative who sits in Jerusalem. He's a Norwegian. His name is Tor Wenisland. And uh, he came out uh, a few um, statements that were very anti-Israel. And uh, it's interesting, by the way, this Wenisland is a former scholar of divinity, philosophy and sociology at the Asso School of Theology, Religion and Society. That's a big title. And he has an even bigger, that's a, a bigger title. Uh, get ready for this. He's called the United Nations Special Coordinator for the Middle East Peace Process and personal representative to the Palestinian Liberation Organization and the Palestinian Authority and envoy of the Secretary General to the Quartet. That's his title. And he he makes statements to the UN and he makes daily tweets. He's been particularly vocal in condemning Israel and adopting almost in totality a biased and one-sided Palestinian narrative. And the interesting thing, he doesn't even conceal his bias. He uh, he does play some kind of minimal lip service to the fact that there are Palestinian terrorists, but it's really only lip service. So the um, 
the UN has a representative here in Israel who's pretty much anti-Israel. He made a statement on the 9th of May. Uh, he said the following, I'm deeply alarmed by developments in Gaza after Israel launched a military operation targeting members of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad movement. The Israeli airstrikes inside Gaza result in the killing of 13 Palestinians, including three members of the, of the PIJ, a doctor, five women, four children, and more than 20 injured. I condemn the deaths of civilians in the Israeli airstrikes. This is unacceptable. Now, this guy, Wenisland, who represents the, U, the United Nations, seems to have forgotten was deliberately chosen to ignore the fact on May two May second, the uh, several days before he had made this statement, it was just just uh, days prior to Israel's launching what was called the Shield a Defensive Shield Operation, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad terror organization fired 104 projectiles from the Gaza Strip into Israel population centers within a span of 24 hours. He also didn't mention or condemn the willful and indiscriminate firing of 70 rockets from the Gaza Strip into Israel between January and April. So there is nothing balanced or neutral to emanate from any part of the UN. However, one might nevertheless expect that one senior UN official whose function purports to include coordination of the Middle East peace process would at least make some attempts to address the realities within which he's functioning and give an honest and straightforward uh, reflection. So it, it's a terrible thing. This The UN representative has a clear disproportion uh, attitude against Israel, which is in contravention of the UN's own internal rules. So the uh, it could well be that a person like this uh, should be sent back and not represent the UN anymore in Israel. The, it's a particularly demeaning and insulting example of UN hypocrisy and double standards. The, they minimize the seriousness of attacks against Israelis, and they overblow what the Israelis do to retaliate because of these uh, attacks. So, uh, and and so, what you have is the UN, which is supposed to be neutral. This is the their representative here presents classic examples of the devious lengths to which senior UN officials are prepared to go in order to avoid telling the truth and calling out Palestinian terrorism for what it is. So it's interesting, by the way, the performance of UN staff members and officials is regulated regulated by the UN Charter and staff rules and regulations. Article 100 of the UN Charter require UN officials to exercise the highest standards of efficiency, competence, and integrity, integrity refrain from actions that might reflect on their position as international officials. That is the document under which these UN representatives uh, operate here in Israel. 
They have to avoid action and uh, pronouncement that may adversely reflect on their on their impartiality. And impartiality is what required by by that status, the status of the UN. So we have a very serious problem now. I remember when the UN first was founded back at the time of uh, at the end of the Second World War, and it was thought the UN would help to bring about peace. I don't have to count the number of wars that have taken place uh, since the end of the Second World War or the fact that the UN consistently uh, in its attitude toward Israel has exhibited terrible hypocrisy. And I think it's really particularly bad that their representatives here in Israel, in the Holy Land, are themselves are not uh, embarrassed by their own hypocrisy. One would think that somehow they would coat, coat their uh, attitude toward the fact that by, by the fact they're supposed to be neutral. You're here to represent a world body which essentially is supposed to be neutral and try to do away with conflicts. Here they are having a representative here in Israel, which is one of the world's hot spots, who takes sides against the state of Israel. And that is simply wrong. The UN has really failed in its mission. Uh, there's, perhaps they do some good in Africa or other countries where uh, may, they may be uh, saving people from starvation and things like that. I'm not familiar with all the details of what they do. But the UN presence here in the state of Israel is simply a very negative one, and it's really, really a disgrace. Uh, and so I just wanted to share these thoughts w with the listeners, because when when the UN representative comes out with a really biased statement against the state of Israel, which really appear on page one of the newspapers, not shoveled somewhere into the back pages, because the world had tremendous hopes for the UN. And unfortunately, even in my own lifetime, I've seen those ho hopes come to nothing. Very sad, but th this is the way things are, and this is the news that has to be reported. Until next time, then, Jay Shapiro signing off. Thanks for listening.